Hi, and welcome to the Sheep Show podcast dedicated to all things ovine. Thank you for joining me. I'm Jill Noble from Holston Valley Farm and Sheep Stud and your host. This is your podcast to learn more, know more and achieve more when it comes to shepherding. Come with me as we explore the amazing world of sheep and sheep farming together. Welcome to the Sheep Show podcast and I am here today with the godfather of sheep. We've met the siblings of sheep so far. We've met Supreme Mentor. Now it is the godfather of sheep. I'm here with Gavin Wall. Now let me tell you a few little things before you you hear about this amazing godfather. Gavin Wall has been breeding sheep since, wait for it, 1959. And not only has he been breeding and selecting sheep, he's also bred cattle, several breeds of cattle, and also angora goats too. So given our episode today is about wool, you can be amazed how much Gavin will know about wool for us as well. He has been particularly most recently breeding Romney sheep, but also over the last couple of years, East Frisians as well. Gavin has also been a professional wool classer and worked in the shearing industry. And not only has he got all the hands-on experience, he's got several qualifications, including qualifications from RMIT. Uh, Gavin's actually been the farm services manager of Tintern Grammar School since 2002. So that's what he's been primarily between breeding sheep at, at Tintern and, and educating young farmers around the around. Um, the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. You think Gavin's busy enough? He's also had and, and held several roles, including being the president of the Romney Association, the president of the Victorian branch of ASBA, the Australian Stud Sheep Breeders Association, and since 2014, the president of the Australian Stud Sheep Breeders Association until most recently, which is very sad for most of us. And also Gavin holds the role of the chairman of the Sheep Committee of the Royal Agricultural Society of Victoria. So after all of that, welcome Gavin. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Jill. I've been called lots of things in my day, but never the godfather. (laughs) These students often refer to me as the sheep whisperer, but uh, Ah. I'll... uh, so long as you don't call me late for lunch, I'll be quite happy. <laughs> or early in the morning if you're Irish. No, um, early in the morning's fine by you, me. You like early starts. I know you like early starts. Thank you, Gavin. Now, I'm, I, I know I've obviously put it in perspective there. And, and for us, I suppose our topic today is, is very much on wool and, and helping the listeners here on the Sheep Show pro- podcast who are from all over the world to know a little bit about wool and learn about wool and, and get an insight, I suppose, into, into what goes on in wool. So let's, uh, let's sort of kick off with, a, a, I suppose, a controversial question, potentially, which is that this, this concept, particularly being in Australia, they say that Australia got rich on the sheep's back. So tell me about that. Is that a myth? Is, is that exactly what happened in Australia? Did we get rich on the sheep's back? No, I don't believe it's a myth. The wool industry has enabled many jobs and provided considerable export dollars for the benefit of many, many Australians. As with most enterprises, there are cyclic factors. Some are external, like seasons and the economic factors. Others are influenced by fashion and fad. We don't need to get wound up in in fashion and fad. 
drought and other primary uh, production systems may be influenced influence farmers to grow other crops instead of running sheep. The value of wool exports is quite significant. I don't have the dollar value in front of me now, but it's fluctuated considerably over the years. But at present, wool is providing a lucrative rewards for those who persisted in sheep and in the sheep industry when things were tough and prices may not have covered the cost of production. There is a considerable area of Australia that is very, very suited to running sheep sustainably and wool production. Interestingly, one of my ancestors, whom I'm named after, Captain Gavin George Hamilton, I believe brought the first sheep to Australia in 1797. So I love it. Got, got a little bit of history. Those uh, Bengal sheep from Calcutta in India uh, probably contributed to the fecundacy, prolificity gene in the Barula Marinos in Australia today. Don't lay claim to too much, but uh, that's very interesting. <laughs> and those Marinos you just mentioned, where, where would you find those? The Barula strain, I believe, is in New South Wales somewhere, and it's where they get a number of lambs from those ewes and I think they refer to it as the Barula strain which can be found in other breeds of sheep as well. And for you, you've primarily focused your, your life's work on dual purpose sheep, so meat sheep and, and wool sheep. What, what do you think are, are some of the best things about breeding wool or, or indeed a dual purpose sheep? I guess we need to look at the choice of breeds should be influenced by the location of the property on which the sheep will be run. There's no point attempting to run wool breed sheep in the tropics, for instance, you know, the, the flies would just have a feast. Different breeds are more suited to high rainfall areas. Others are suited to low rainfall areas. My earliest memory with involvement with sheep started when I was about 10. And my dad had a Corridale stud and I guess he wanted me and my brother to have an interest in showing sheep. Then when I was 11, my brother and I, with a little bit of help from our grandfather, purchased 352 acres at uh, Ambo, which is a little area between Shepherd and Benalla in Victoria. We ran uh, first cross ewes and dad suggested buying Dorset horn ewes so that we could breed our rams for our first cross ewe enterprise. So that's when we first started with Dorset horn. I don't know that they are registered, but uh, we had them there and I can still picture them. But dad had a Corridale stud, which Jeff and I would show at local shows and clearly remember loading up the old inter-truck, uh, put the sheep in the back, unload the sheep at the show and uh, lay down our, our swag and sleep in the back of the truck overnight and then show the sheep next day. So my introduction to stud sheep and showing in, and the wool industry began very, very early in my life. And I've had good fortune to have bred Merino, Corridale, Dorset Horn, Suffolk, uh, White Suffolk, Romney and East Frisians. And I had a few pole Dorset there for a while whilst we were starting to breed the uh, White Suffolk. I currently assist uh, many breeders who run a variety of different breeds. So that, that's a great pleasure for me. My involvement with ASBAR has enabled interactions with a multitude of breeds and, and different breeders from all over the place. My position as chairman of RASB, which is the Melbourne Show Sheep Committee, ASBAR, Australian Stud Sheep Breeders Association, judging at shows around Australia and New Zealand, have given me an opportunity 
and appreciation of all breeds meeting a multitude of uh, sheep breeders around the world. So I've been very, very lucky. I think anyone who works in, in the sheep industry or with sheep is very lucky. You've mentioned a whole range of breeds there. I really like this concept. It's something that I really believe in too, that every breed has its purpose. What do you think about that? Every breed uh, has its purpose. And when you consider what I mentioned earlier, the location of a property where the sheep are to be run, you need to take into account the rainfall, the soils, and a number of things. As I said, no point trying to run wool sheep up in the tropics because the high rainfall and the, the problem with flies would just make it intolerable. So, yeah. So, so if we have, we have, I know I have some listeners, for example, in places like Pakistan and, and different places in Russia, so uh, obviously different climate. So if there was a wool breed or a dual purpose breed that you think would work in, in those more drier or humid climates, what, what would that be? Very interesting question because I got news yesterday, one of our rams, Tintern Hugo, we exported semen to Kazakhstan towards the end of last year. Now those lambs are just hitting the, the ground now and they're, they're very pleased with it. But I've seen pictures of some of their other breeds of sheep there, which are absolutely monstrous. You know, rams over 200 kilo, they, they're just like ponies. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. yes, they chose the Romney. Actually, the Kazakhstan government came to Australia some uh, two years ago. They had a shopping list of five breeds to collect semen and take back to Kazakhstan and, and use that semen over the ewes, the local ewes, some of which have been infused with Australian Merino. And they went home with one breed. Wow. They crossed four of those other sheep breeds off the list and went home with the Romney. So it's pretty exciting. And right now, as we record this, the lambs are hitting the ground from the AI program from the use of that Hugo semen last year. So, so why does a, a breed like Romney's work in, in a place like Kazakhstan? What is it? I've not been to Kazakhstan. It, uh, the, the region there is very picturesque where the photographs that I've seen, it, it's valleys and mountains and the, the, uh, the herders there are absolute brilliant horse people and they just love their horses and, and love the sheep. I, I'm not sure what the rainfall is, but obviously they did their homework before they finally selected on the uh, Romney. Mm, that's amazing. That's amazing. So, so it is interesting, particularly when you think about the the concept of a of a dual purpose sheep like the Romney. It, it on other wool breeds or dual purpose breeds, they can work. You know, um, so if you if you choose the right breed. So if, um, if you were thinking of perhaps starting out in, in, with a wool sheep in particular, and, and let's say, because again, a lot of passionate people who breed sheep for spinning or wooling or craft or, or even to sell the commodity of wool, what, what do you think? What are some things people need to be aware of if they were going to focus on a wool sheep? Wool breeds are probably one of the most challenging animals to breed successfully. Anyone can breed any old sheep and just have a, a pretty ordinary result. But you have to take into account all the structural attributes of a sheep as well as the wool characteristic. Now, wool, it's an amazing thing and there's so many different attributes to it and so many different things that you need to take into account when breeding a good sheep. 
The success of a breeding program, especially wool breeds, are influenced by your rainfall, district, the district you're in, uh, soil and potential pasture, pasture production, so that you're able to look after those sheep and, and manage them well. Generally, finer wool sheep usually require a higher rainfall area and the medium to strong merino are capable of performing in the medium to lower rainfall regions. One of the challenges for the fine wool producer is to manage the challenges associated with higher rainfall. Higher rainfall, you have wet, wet ground and pastures and the merino has a, a white coloured hoof which is more susceptible to foot rot and other um, foot conditions. So you need to bear in mind many factors before you choose a breed. And the thing is, if you choose a breed that you don't like, you're never going to get the best out of it. You have to like the, the breed of sheep that you choose. What makes you say that? What makes it so important to like your breed? Well, if you don't have the passion for it, you're just going to tick along below where you could be. If you like something, your heart is in it and you need to, you know, the sheep will pick up. They're very clever. They'll pick up on your vibes. And if you like them, then your chances of doing well increase significantly so that's just the way i feel that's my opinion others may may vary with their opinion but you must like what you're doing yeah for me i think that passion and that that doing it with the heart is so important because it's well as we talked on some of the other podcasts it's it's not all easy you know it's it's it's, it's can be really quite challenging and you have good days you have bad days so without the passion you're not going to sustain that Exactly. There are the times, you know, it might be a wet, cold winter and you know you've got used lambing and you think, oh, I won't go out. No, you must go. You must check. And, you know, if you like it, your heart's in it, it's, it's a lot easier to get out there and, and do whatever needs to be done. Mm -hmm. The other thing that you need to be aware of, you know, if you've got livestock, occasionally you will get, not live, you'll get some dead ones, unfortunately, and that's very hard to take because you've, you know, you put your heart and soul into breeding those animals and anything happens to them, then it, it really does impact you. If it doesn't impact you, then your heart is not really invested in it how I believe it should be. Very important. So I'm interested you mentioned there that the finer wool sheep require the higher rainfall area, but yet there are challenges with that. With that. So what is it about this finer wool that requires the higher rainfall? Uh, good question. It, it just seems that you go to a higher rainfall area like Western District, the Strathbogie District, and then up around Armadale and up, up in the high country, mm. Monaro, etc., is where you will find some of the finer wool. I really don't know the reason why. It's mm. just that that's how it turns out. Now, probably there's a better explanation that I can offer. I haven't bred fine wool. I've worked in, in very fine wool shearing sheds and appreciated the wool that they've had. And one of the first sheds that I went into was Colliburn Park near Bendigo. And that was lovely wool. Uh, Mr. Jack Barber, who was quite famous for his Colliburn Park merinos, I, I got on very well with Jack. I was the only uh, shed staff that uh, stayed at the shed over the weekend, so I would help him muster, and I learnt a lot from Jack. Lovely fella. Mm. His grandson is actually running that property now, and they have 
I understand an enterprise where they take their wool and have it processed and, and sell it. I don't know whether it's in garments, but certainly they, they're doing a great job. So I went down to their other property, Golf Hill, down at Shelford near Geelong and, and uh, run the shed down there. So interesting, but I can't really answer you why fine merino need higher rainfall country. I, I guess it's a nutritional factor there somewhere where you have reliable pasture for the sheep yeah, to grow the that's, wool. that's kind of what I'm thinking as well. But sometimes with high rainfall, you have lots of grass, but sometimes it's very watery grass or very low in, in protein. So it's interesting. I wonder, I'll put that question out to some of our listeners. If, uh, if you know why um, specifically the finer wool breeds need the, uh, the high rainfall, is it a nutritional thing like, like Gavin's suggesting? So please uh, drop, us, uh, drop us a line or get in touch with me through the, the podcast or uh, the website www.holstonvalleyfarm.com and let us know. We'd love to, we'd love to know. Thanks, Gavin. Interesting sort of conversations. If again, if you were thinking of starting out in wool sheep and you, you, you know that you've got the passion for, for the, the fiber and you hadn't bred sheep before, what do you think? What's a good starter breed for someone who has never bred sheep before? I know it does depend on the environment, which you've mentioned, but are there a couple of breeds you could mention? Well, the thing is, again, I, I take you back to my comments earlier, where you need to be able to choose a breed of sheep that will suit your district. You know, the rainfall, the, the, the terrain, the reliability of the rainfall, the soil, uh, the pastures, etc., will determine to some degree which breed of sheep that you take on. What I would suggest with anyone who is in that situation is that they talk to others, ask questions, ask lots of questions, go to a show, which is pretty difficult in the current environment with coronavirus, but mm. hopefully we'll have some uh, virtual shows up and running at some stage. But the, the main thing is if you're thinking of making a decision to get into a sheep breed, go and look, walk up and down the aisles. You'll gravitate towards a breed of sheep that you feel comfortable with and talk to those breeders. Sure, they're going to tell you all the good things about that breed because they're passionate about that breed. And if you can be equally as passionate, then probably one of those breeds will suit you best. But I can't tell anyone that breed a particular breed will suit you. I can narrow it down a bit, but you need to be passionate and like the breed of sheep that you see in front of you. Well, and I think that's a that's very good advice, really. And, and I suppose in, in terms of where someone like Gavin, I suppose, here fits in is, is that they're available for, for breeders to talk to. And we'll talk about how people can get in touch with you as well, perhaps to, to sort of get that sort of specialist advice. So just on that, then we know that different wool, different sheep produce wool for different uses. So you talk about the finer wool, but I'm interesting about the, this overall picture of the, of the fiber of wool and, and how it's used. Wool is an amazing fibre, absolutely amazing fibre, and, and probably not everyone realised just how amazing it is. It's environmentally sustainable in the production of wool because sheep go out and eat grass in the sunshine and convert that a, a very good fibre. It's hypoallergenic, which means that you, you, know, you, you shouldn't get any allergies to it. 
the fire resistant factor of it is amazing. One of the, the things that I show the students is I get a staple of wool and light a match and put it under the wool. It will burn whilst the matches there take the match away and the wool actually sort of pills and the wool stops burning. So it's fire resistant, which is very, very handy in furnishings, particularly in aeroplanes. It regulates temperature. Now, you can wear the sports wool, which some of the footballers wear. They can be out in the pouring rain, and yet their skin temperature remains warm, unlike synthetics where they'll be freezing cold. Now, the comfort factor of wool, you need to choose a quality garment to wear next to your skin. Now, one of the things that the merino breeders are doing now is testing for comfort factor. Comfort factor is the when there is not present stronger fibres within that wool sample. And it's the end of each of those stronger fibres that may irritate the skin. Now, it's a really important factor in the valuation of wool, the comfort factor. It's that wool is quite elastic and the Downs type wool is very elastic and chosen for socks, except static resistant, you know, who's been on on uh, synthetic carpets and touched a light switch and thought that you were, you know, got electric shock. I'll never forget when I was in Canada once, I, I went to the people and I said, you've got to shorten your light switch, but uh, it wasn't the light switch, it was the synthetic app. And you could actually see the spark jump across. Acoustic capability, so it's good for soundproofing. Uh, it lasts a long time, you know, a good woolen garment properly looked after, lasts a long time. White wool will accept any colour. It's mildew resistant and it diminishes body odour. Now, that's where, you know, we all sweat. We all need to be able to sweat. It diminishes sweat in the body because it, it, it wicks away that sweat and uh, much better for you. Stain resistant. This is after the wool's been processed, etc. Reassuringly safe and a natural barrier to UV biodegradable it's renewable it's renewed each year it's it's sleek and elegant very colorful colorful and fashionable easy to tailor and permanent press i actually uh, use uh, crutchings uh, <laughs> as mulch on the veggie uh, garden so <laughs> i uh, i put an old wool jumper this this year on the top of my um worm bin to keep them nice and warm over, over winter. I thought, oh, that's a good use of an old wool jumper. <laughs> yeah, earthworms don't like too much of a variance in temperature. Mm. They don't, it's, you know, they're a bit like Goldilocks. They don't like it too hot, just don't right. like it too cold, and prefer <laughs> it just right. So consumers' requirements will determine what type of wool suits that particular market. For instance, any garment that is worn next to the skin, which we've just been talking about, will require a fine merino that is a high comfort factor. So the comfort factor is a measurement taken, taken in the valuation of wool prior to auction. High-end fashion will be where the fine merino wool provides great satisfaction. There's nothing like wearing a quality woolen suit especially if you've been used to in your dirty old farm clothes and you've got to go to a function and you clean up and you put on a lovely woolen suit. Now I'm speaking from a man's point of view and I imagine that there are some beautiful garments that the women can wear as well. So not imagine, I know there is. 
So wool in the micron 35 to 45 now, a micron is the measurement of the actual fiber diameter. So 45 microns is uh, still fairly uh, small to the naked eye, but uh, one can feel the difference when you handle it. But these stronger wools, when I refer to stronger wools, we're referring to the broader uh, micron. Did train on the Bradford count, which would take ages to try and explain, so we won't go there. But these 35 to 40 micron wools are suited to the carpet trade, or you know, the, the 35 microns might make a good overcoat or an outer garment. Now we have the downs type of wool, which is usually grown on the the uh, meat breeds. It's quite elastic and suited to uh, socks, where you need some elasticity and a lot of it when you say these downs breeds can you just identify a few of the breeds that would fall into this category with downs wool the downs wool is usually on the meat breeds like your south down your suffolk and your dorset and your hampshire and so the downs wool is uh, I'll perhaps yeah i can describe that now it it's sort of a fuzzy looking wool the Wool doesn't group together in staples like merino, corridor, polworth, uh, romney, bordelester. So the downs wool is quite fuzzy and doesn't have a definition of crimp. Mm. So it's different and you get a hold of it and you, you, you pick up and grab a hold of each end and it's quite elastic. So hence the use in, in socks, etc. So, But you uh, still look at those yeah. sheep as, as being... You know, that, that wool has still got a commercial value to it. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. Yeah. All, all wool has a value. Mm. It's just where it fits into the trade and what the demand is there, and that fluctuates from time to time. Mm. Wool, again, wool is a, quite a, an extensive subject. Wool fits into two types of trade, depending on the micron mm. as to how long it's required to be in order to fit into the worsted trade because the worsted trade is where the wool is long enough for that micron that it can be combed and spun. The shorter wool fits into the woolen trade. So it's carded, great big, you know, in the, in the manufacturing plant, there's this great big drum of uh, little wire spikes that card it to align the fibres parallel. And it goes into the woolen trade, which is used for knitting, making sweaters and blankets. Certainly the, the production of blankets, I can remember going through the one of the blanket mill manufacturers in Melbourne, long gone now, of course, and blankets, they utilise the natural felting attributes of wool because uh, the wool fibres naturally lock against each other. Just imagine the, the, each individual wool fibre is like an endless pine cone. And when each of those are together, they may slip past each other in the felting process and not able to slip back. So it's a bit like a, a zip tie where you can pull it through easily and it won't come back. So that's why some people, if they wash a woolen, woolen garment in warm, soapy water and the agitation, the fibres slip past each other and, and won't release. And that's why the garment goes in a size... <laughs> XXX and size. comes out small. <laughs> so, wow, but that's they, amazing. They, 
they do actually process the wool for the um, the washing ability mm. and it actually goes through a, a mild acid to take the edges off the cellular structure of the wool fibers so that they can release from each other so really interesting really interesting the other thing is that lamb's wool depending on how long it is as to which trait it goes into if it's quite long like a hoggart or a wiener uh, age it can finish up in the in the worsted part of the trade but usually it finishes up in the in the woolen trade and at times if you buy a cheap supposed woolen garment that has lamb's wool in it and you know if it has lamb's wool by that garment will kill like little balls of wool mm. so you know know that they cheapened that garment by putting in uh, lower price lamb's wool but it's still a good still a good product if you look after it'll last a long time mm. so Wow. Confusing. No, I think it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's just it's just interesting to sort of see how this impacts every day, you know, in terms of how we wash clothes or look after woolen clothes and I even buy woolen woolen garments as well. So I'm interested in the um so you mentioned the the shorter wool then and and I know in, in some of the shows we talk about, you know, long wool breeds and short wool breeds. So is is that the same? Is that the connection there? Or can you can you expand on that to help help our listeners? The the, the uh, division of the breeds long wool and short wool is potentially the long wool breeds given okay, let's take it at a twelve month stage, yeah. all of the long wool breeds, their wool will grow longer than the short wool breeds. Mm. Now the length of wool grown in a twelve month period will be dependent on the micron because mm. the, the the finer the micron, the less it's going to grow in a twelve month period or any period of time for that matter. So you you're um, Lincoln, for instance, which is one of the strongest breeds or is the strongest breed we have in Australia, it will grow, and I'm sorry, I'm still in the old imperial measurement, it will grow about a foot long in a year, 10 inches to a foot long. Wow. Your English Leicester, similar, perhaps not quite as long. Your Romney will be, you know, five, six inches. And you come down to your super fine Merino and it might only be three inches or so long. Sorry, you'll have to convert that for the, for the younger generation. <laughs> That'll be great because uh, uh, hopefully there, I think there are some countries that still use those measurements anyway, so they'll be listening in and understanding that. Yeah, but in answer to your questions, long wool and short wool breeds, your long wool breeds all have staple structure with their fleece so that when you look at it, you've got the group of fibres together form all over the body. Now, to as selection for those long wool breeds, the larger the staple, the more wool you'll grow on the sheep. So if you have a sheep with what we call small pencil staples, they won't have the density of wool on that body as the sheep that has a big blocky staple. So just another interesting aspect mm. that you can pick up, you know, the potential yield uh, of weight of wool off a sheep just by looking from a distance the staple size. Wow, that's amazing. And talking of that then, so w when we look at the yield, how much is a, is a wool clip worth? Uh, and then again, you can talk about it in terms of 
dollars or weight, whatever, whatever you think, you know, what are we, what are we talking about here? That's going to vary. And it's going to vary from property to property, breed mm. to breed, uh, just going to depend on their selection criteria, you know, with measuring fleece, fleece weights, it, it can certainly help you in the, the volume, like the, the quantity and the quality of, of the wool, you know, with our Romney, which are a dual purpose, I've focused on every attribute that I think has commercial viability. And one of those is the fleece. Now, traditionally, Romney were about 40 micron, and some still are. And it's very difficult to breed a Romney that's fine. You have to take it down in increments, because if you try to go from 40 to 25 in one hit, you haven't got a Romney. You've lost those black feet. You've lost the black nose. You've lost the hardiness. So it's a, it's a slow process, and I've got it down from 40, and some of our wieners are down in the 25, 26. But a wiener, when it comes in 12 months later, it'll be up around 32. So weight-wise, uh, some of the ewes can have four to eight kilo fleece. Perhaps your rams nine to fifteen kilo. Now, we need to be careful when we're taking fleece weights because if you're in a dusty area and selling your wool, you're selling part of the farm as dust in that fleece. So the yield, when we talk yield of wool, we're actually talking the amount of of uh, usable fibre within that greasy fleece weight. Mm -hmm. So when we shear a sheep, you've got the bell wool the fleece comes off as one mm. and you'll pick that up and throw it on the skirting table and then you'll take the the pieces of wool that are around that what we call the sweat points the front legs and the back legs you'll take those off because they have a different yield there's a lot more sweat and, and, and grease and yolk in that so what we want to do is make that fleece as reasonably uniform for yield lengths etc one of our Rams, Tinterns, Elmo. We've got a few famous. Elmo will be known to those in America. They, they, he was in one of the magazines over there about four or five years ago, and he continues to get a lot of attention. But he sure, I think it was about a 14 kilo fleece uh, quite a few years ago now because he's 70 year old. And that skirted back to 10 kilo, and that fleece won numerous awards at the mm. various shows. Now, he got attention from a Romney breeder from New Zealand and he said, I want a piece of that. So Elmo Seaman went to New Zealand and I was just there a few months ago when I saw grandsons and great-grandsons and I just yesterday got news that another son of his has been chosen to put with use as a ram lamb. So they think very highly of him there. Mm. They love uh, their Romneys in yeah. New Zealand. Yeah, they're the major breed over there mm -hmm. simply because of the rainfall and the terrain. You know, yeah. you really need mountain goats on some of that country. Beautiful country, but certainly, uh, although it's very dry there at present, mm -hmm. in the South Island, talked to Hugh yesterday, and he said they're desperately looking for rain. So mm -hmm. in the main, uh, Romney were, were there because of the, the wet terrain now. A lot of the Romney sheep have been pushed up into the hills and mountains because that that flat country is uh, has been taken over for dairy because there's a lot of water underneath and irrigation, etc. Mm. But uh, mm. you know the Romney are very popular over there.
And when you look at wool, um, what what can wool tell you? I mean, I remember being at a at a show with with my my breed of sheep, and and um, someone said to me, "Oh, does this sheep have a fever? It seems to be shedding its wool." And I thought, oh, "Okay, that's interesting." <laughs> so, what can you tell from from a, a? Of course, it wasn't. It was a shedding sheep, so that's why it was shedding its wool. But can you tell things about the sheep and the sheep's health and hardiness and and the, the life that they've had from their wool well I'll, I'll get to that question in a tick but when we say shedding it doesn't mean that those sheep have to be in a shed the shedding <laughs> means that their, their their wool breaks off naturally yeah, sorry yes and, and, and falls off so uh, yes um, your question is a great one the thing is that wool records the health and nutrition history of that animal for that particular time that the wool has grown their feet uh, also record the same sorts of things, health and nutrition, the same, same as in uh, cattle, as is in sheep, uh, goats, etc. If you look down at the, at the hoof of a sheep and you see an indentation that goes right around for that growth period, you know that that sheep has not been well or something different has happened at some stage and even sometimes some ewes, uh, particularly there is Frisian, uh, they will start to shed their wool up the neck and on the belly, and you will see that mark across the hoof as well. So wow. the, the, the wool, you know, let, let's imagine the sheep started off after shearing. There was plenty of grass, plenty of feed. So the wool then will be broader, means that the micron is larger. So we run into summer and the feed is much less, less protein. Nutrition of it is not as good. The wool fibre will actually diminished down a couple of microns and if we get time one other time we'll look at the fiber scan machine of Don and Don Morrison and Eugene yeah. O'Sullivan from New Zealand and it actually measures the fiber diameter from tip tip and you can see the fluctuations that take place mm -hmm. over that growth period so the, the wool will tell you some history about the sheep mm -hmm. And uh, then, you know, the sheep we talked about before that went through the summer and, okay, we've got good rains in autumn and the feed's plentiful, the wool fibre will strengthen up, broaden to a, a couple of degrees, a couple of microns difference. So, yes, the wool records the history for you. Mm. Now, one of the other things which I find quite intriguing is that the ear of a wool sheep will tell you a lot about the quality of that wool. You walk down the aisles of the Merino and the Corridale, the, the, the Polworth at any show, and you'll see the sheep with this beautiful white ears covered with this soft hair. And if you have the opportunity, and, and maybe you'll have to ask the owner, may you have a look at the wool on that sheep, but when you open up the wool, particularly on the shoulder, uh, you will find the curvature, which means that the, the, the crimps or the character of that wool is really well defined. It's usually very dense and just absolutely magnificent. So it's something that, that I like to see. We need cover on the ears because if, if you don't have cover on the ears, you won't have the density in the wool and, you know, they may be prone to a bit of skin damage, uh, cancer damage at some stage later in their lives. The other thing is that if a sheep uh, suffers stress of any, any nature, uh, quite often 
this may be if the sheep gets fly blown, which is a horrible thing. No farmer wants to see that at all. It will cause the, the sheep some stress and maybe mastitis or you know maybe a difficult birth or something like that the the actual fiber follicle within the bulb will diminish significantly and because it's under stress that wool fiber isn't nourished through the sebaceous gland and the sweat gland and it becomes sort of dry and brittle now about two weeks after that uh, animal has gone through that stress and hopefully it's recovered the wool will break off, you know, because it's what we call tender. And now, depending on how much stress the animal is going through as to how tender it is. So if it's broken off mid-growth, mid then that will be devalued considerably at the marketplace. Mm. If it happens, you know, uh, a very short distance from either tip, it will be devalued because the, 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 the top to noil ratio will be not desirable and, and top to noil, the top being the, the good fibre and the noil being the short fibres that are combed out, which are, you know, a, a much lower value. Uh, you can perhaps get away with, with sheep that have gone through stress just before shearing or, or just after the last shearing. So depending on where that break is as to what the value of, of the wool is. And certainly wool at, uh, at the marketplace is tested every which way uh, that we can cover that perhaps another day. But it's very interesting to see, uh, you know, what makes... Uh, Wool, some wool worth more than others. Mm. Wool indicators for muscle, and we talked about this earlier. One of the things that will indicate muscle is when you have a look at an animal from the side view, you will see some uh, shape or muscle expression in the butt. If you have the opportunity to look at those sheep when they're recently shorn, you will see that much, much easier. And if they are shorn, you'll see that muscle definition in the butt, the muscle expression, the shape. And when you look over the top, there'll be a channel down the, the spine. And if you're astute, you will see muscle expression in the forearm. Heavily muscled breeds of sheep often leave a bit to be desired in structure they can't move as freely because of all the the extra muscle uh, mm. prevents them from walking as freely like and often <laughs> exactly exactly they don't don't exact whilst down the street and the structure of those very heavily muscled animals can be such that they have a low pin set and and that prevents them from from walking as freely as, as well so the shape can be seen but it, it just needs a little bit of an eye to see it you might get someone at a show that that's taken advantage of a pair of shears and they don't do it as much in australia those listening in america and england will understand that the the, the shape of the sheep underneath is not the same as the shape of the sheep outside mm. on the wool they, they they clip them to shape so it's one of the reasons why you feel a sheep to see what really is underneath there mm. so now we talked about staples of the wool so we've got the downs type which we're talking about talked about the 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 meat breeds will have that downs type of wool fuzzy appearance lacking crimp or character and lacks staple definition that's found on the the the, rec the recognized wool breeds the third part of your question i believe referred to hardiness mm. now hardiness as a general rule of thumb, the hardier a sheep breed, the stronger the wool. General rule of thumb, not usually, but not always. 
but that's what I've found is they're really hardy. They have that tendency towards growing stronger wool. These breeds are able to withstand some pretty adverse climatic conditions, diseases and parasites. So they will have recognised this with their with share, uh, that they have black feet. Mm. Blackfeet usually indicates a breed's ability to withstand wet conditions conducive to the development of bacterial disease in the feet called foot rot. Now, foot, lock, foot rot, as I tell my students, if they've never seen it, and I hope they never do, is a little like athletes' feet only multiplied by 100. You know, poor sheep, it, it's really bad. Now, blackfeet are usually accompanied by black or dark nostrils on that breed of sheep. And that was one of the things that was a challenge with finding up Romneys is to keep the black feet and the dark, dark nostrils. I've achieved it, but it's a, an interesting process. Now, there's many variables of tolerance to internal parasites, foot rot within breeds and between breeds. There is a test done by Lincoln University in New Zealand, which provides a DNA test that one is for foot rot resistance Another is for cold tolerance. I have an interesting theory, which I've discussed with Professor Hickford, that the thickness of the skin and the thickness of the ear may be, you know, talk about the ear again, may be an indicator of nice thick ears with that well-covered velvet-like short hair, may be an indicator of cold tolerance. I haven't been able to prove that theory yet, so watch this space. Now, the other thing is, as best I can explain, the gene for black feet and black nostrils are located within a bunch of genes that determine black attributes. Now, again, I've discussed this one with uh, Professor Hickford and he explained to me, you know, each gene isn't in isolation with with these characteristics, a little like a bunch of grapes. And that bunch of grapes, we've got one uh, one, one grape that says this sheep will have black feet. Another another grape will have black nostrils, mm. but hidden within that bunch is another black gene that says, okay, we'll put some black spots on the ears Ooh. of this sheep. Mm. We'll put some black spots on the face of that sheep. We'll put some black spots occasionally on the body of that sheep and occasionally on the legs. So again, another theory that, that is quite interesting. It's exactly and I what we get with the Wilshire horns, where we, we get these black spots, particularly as the, as the animal gets older. And, and if, you get, if you get pigment somewhere, you get pigments elsewhere. Very, very good observation. And what I've observed with the Romney is if they've got a dark spot on the ear, it's not desirable, but it's acceptable. Mm. They may well have a dark pigment spot on the body. Now, when that sheep gets six or eight years old, it may start to grow uh, black fibres from that spot. An observation, Mm. not real happy that they're there, but the thing is, to breed fine wool, we need the black feet on a Romney, and we've got to use some use sometimes that they've got those beauty spots on their ears, so we'll go with it. But certainly wool, you know, it, it's an amazing topic and happy to talk about mm. it another day. Mm. And another topic that I think is, is fascinating uh, is line breeding because of, you know, what we've just been talking about, breeding the Romney finer wool, I've had to go back because uh, we lost the, the uh, black feet on our Romney at one stage. So I had to go back in uh, 2009 and use a ram that was born in 1984. 
to get the black feet back. Now we achieved that. So I had to go backward to go forward. So breeding is really interesting. And I'm just filling in some five generation pedigrees for Hugh Taylor, the day boy Romney started in New Zealand and uh, really interesting stuff coming out there. And, and, and so often all his top sheep trace back to about three or four rams. Now by line breeding, we're able to keep those genetics of those great sheep coming forward. If we outcross, we dilute that and we've lost it, lost it for good. So another interesting subject, but uh, I'm an avid fan of line breeding. Yeah, thank you, Gavin. I, I think you've just highlighted our next, um, next time we get a you on the, on the podcast, what we're going to talk about, because I, I know a lot of people are, are very interested in when it works and when it doesn't work in this concept of line breeding. When we're talking about wool, we can't talk about wool and talk about shearing as well so when when do you shear a sheep and why do you do you actually need to to shear sheep what's the what's the bigger picture because i know this this, it's controversial as well so the the concept of shearing when and why okay uh, shearing is governed by your breed your location and especially when you use a going to land now with our romney I've tried different times of the year and shearing, and I found that the best option was to shear our ewes on or about the 1st of June. Incidentally, that fitted in with when uh, sheep that were to be entered in shorn classes at the show, that was the rule. They had to be shorn on or after the 1st mm. of June. But that fitted our program really well because our ewes will lamb towards the end of July or thereabouts, and shearing a heavily pregnant ewe is not desirable. So certainly by shearing on the 1st of June, they've got a month to get over the shearing and regrow some wool. At the same time, shearing, and this is prior to lambing, they get their vaccination, booster vaccinations and drenching and whatever we need to do to them. So by just... A, rounding them up to once is less less stress on them and less stress on me and uh, it, it fits our program yes if the weather is inclement those ewes will go back into the, in, into the shed and they're shorn with what we call a snow comb so they've got you know equivalent to week or 10 days more length back on them sorry the, the dogs your, come your little, in the room your little sheep your little sheep dogs there yeah, squeeze, <laughs> squeeze the daylights out of the duck, yeah. a plastic duck that is. <laughs> anyway, just something to distract me. But if the, the weather's inclement, we have quite a bit of vegetation and uh, the, the ewes are able to go in there. Now, one of the other reasons why we shear the ewes at that stage is if the ewes that's a lamb and they've got a lot of wool on, and a Romney has quite a length of, can have quite a length of wool. When the ewe lambs, it can't find the teat to get a feed. So by having the ewe shorn with a little bit of wool on, they're going to look for shelter when they lamb. When the lamb gets up, and that's usually, you know, a few minutes, five minutes, ten minutes sort of max, they're up and about and looking for a feed. So it's important they get a feed of milk, that colostrum, because if they don't get that, their energy reserves uh, dip very, very quickly. So by shearing, when we do, it enables the lambs to have a better survival chance. Mm. Mind you, in turn, everything's looked after very, very well. You know, there's uh, yeah. lots of eyes looking out for them. So the lamb's able to suckle, got that energy, it will sit down, hopefully in the sunshine, and start to grow. So... It, 
one of the reasons why we shear then. Now that's going to to uh, vary on the breed of sheep when you're going to lamb, where you are. So find what works best for the sheep. You know, give your sheep the best chance of being comfortable. Look at that. Now the other thing, whilst we're on lambing, one of the things that uh, Hugh Taylor does is when they're lambing is that they score the ewe for her mothering ability. Wow. Now, if, if a ewe gives birth, one, two, three, preferably, and in his flock, if she only has one, she's down the road. She has to rear two or more, but he will score her. Now, it's a bit like golf. The lower the score, the better. So if she stands her ground and stamps her feet and looks after the lamb, she gets a one. If she runs away 10 or 15, 20 metres, she gets a two. If she run, runs that's running away, away, and running away from the lamb? Yes. Yep. If she runs away and doesn't come back, she just keeps going. <laughs> so one of the other things that you would need to consider, let, let's say you're in an area where you've got barley grass or corkscrew and the, the, the grass seeds are going to really impact the sheep. Now, you need to be right on top of that. You can't have sheep with long wool and grass seeds because that's very uncomfortable for them. So uh, by shearing, we'll pretty much eliminate the grass seed problem in your sheep. Mm. You're still going to have it in your paddocks, but uh, just be aware of grass seeds. Mm. Always observe your sheep, always. Mm. You know, they will tell you in, in a, a roundabout way that something's not right. So mm -hmm. observe the unusual there. And from an animal welfare point of view, what, what are the benefits of, of shearing? Because, again, I've, there's a lot of people out there think it's quite a cruel thing to do. But there's benefits, right? Yes, we hear that point of view. Mm. They're entitled to their view. Mm. The, the reality is that sheep have been bred to grow wool. And if you don't shear that off, it will grow long. Mm. And with the long wool, and it rains, particularly in the summertime, it may be the opportunity for that little green blowfly, Lucilia caprina, to come along and lay its eggs. And that's how the sheep gets what we call body strike, fly strike, breech strike, whatever. So by shearing the wool off, it enables the sheep to be comfortable. It's, mm. it's you know, a sustainable product. It will just keep producing more for the next year. Mm. So the other, the other thing that could happen, particularly if you're in hilly country or country that's got a few little divots or whatever, is the sheep lays down and with the wet wool, she can't stand up. That's what we call cast. And she will stay there until you get her back on her feet. Mm. So it's in the sheep's interest for them to be shorn. It's in the sheep's interest for them to be looked after and monitored at all times. Now, another thing that may take place between shearing, in our case, which is annually, is what we call crutching, and that's shearing the, the, the daggy wool from the back end. We don't want that daggy wool there. Now, ideally, if you've got really daggy sheep, you may need to look at your drench program. There could be a number of reasons there. It could be that you're having a wonderful season and the, the grass is very lush, and it's going straight through the sheep and, you know, contaminating the wool at the back end there. So we, we just need to be on top of that, uh, shear that off. And, and what I do, I put it on the rhubarb. So uh, the <laughs> rhubarb grows real well. Love it. And, and if you're going to have a breed wool sheep, you, you do need 
certain um, facilities uh, and infrastructure. So what do you, what sort of facilities and infrastructure do you need when breeding a wool sheep? If you've got any sheep, you need the facilities to be able to manage them. Now, if you've got 10 sheep, your infrastructure, your yards are going to be very simple. But if you've got 1,000 sheep or 10,000 sheep, then as you step up in numbers, you're going to need to step up into the types of facilities that you have so that you can manage those sheep properly. You know, at, at the bare limit, you'll need a yard mm. with a gate on it, a hinge gate and a catch. Then add to that a, a race, a drafting race, drenching race, where we can put those sheep through and mm. sort off. Let's say we've got one that's fly-blown, much easier to sort it into a small pen and catch it, or if we've got you know sheep that we need to separate, divide for any reason, we need the drafting race. Then you're going to uh, perhaps take sheep to market, or you've sold them to someone who's interested. You're going to need a, a safe loading race. So facilities need to be safe for the handler and safe for the sheep. You don't want you know pits, pieces of sharp stick or wire or what jutting out that are going to injure yourself or the sheep. So make sure that you pay attention to the infrastructure. Mm. You can go all the way to, you know, having fancy EID tags, which is compulsory in Victoria here in Australia, with um, a race reader that, that reads the tag, reads the weight, sends that to your computer. You can have an auto draft system that mm. you set the parameters and all you've got to do is keep the sheep running through and the machine will sort the sheep based on the criteria that you've selected from. So really important make sure that you have ideal facilities that suit the number of sheep that you have and if if someone was going to buy uh, a, a wool breed or a dual purpose breed of sheep what do you think what what, do, what should they look for when they're when they're picking out some um, i'm thinking they are picking out breeders here what would you be looking for in a wool or a dual purpose? In any breed, no matter what it is, structural correctness is an absolute paramount. And one of the first things you, you look at is the mouth. Now, the mouth will tell you a number of things. It'll tell you how old the sheep is relative to in years. Because sheep and all ruminants only have uh, teeth on the bottom at the front, and they use a pad on the top jaw to bite the grass off. So the alignment of those teeth is really important. We, we don't want what we call undershot, where the teeth mm. are back from the, the pad, or some people might refer to that as an underbite, or overshot, overbite, where the teeth protrude beyond the gum mm. and they can't really feed uh, efficiently. Yes, they will get some, but they will be poor, poor doers, poor growers. Mm. And it's in the interest that, that you do not breed from any sheep like that. And it's amazing, amazing how many sheep are out there. I've inspected quite a number of recently purchased animals, should I say, that are really bad in the mouth. Mm. And they've been purchased because someone got rid of them and pass the fault on to the next learner. So mm -hmm. check the mouth. The structure is really important now. You know, the, the, um, the shoulders, the spine, the pasterns, which are like your wrist, they need the Goldilocks principle. A little bit of angulation, not too much, not too little, but just right. The hocks, which is like the heel on the back, your heel on the back leg, mm -hmm. the angle of that is really important. Now, why we talk about structures being important, what you need to understand is 
when a sheep walks, if the structure is correct, it's going to place its feet on the ground at the correct angle and it will wear its hoof away naturally in the correct angle. If there's a problem with the structure, it will put its foot down at the wrong angle, usually put its heel down first and you'll get these big long toenails like they're pixies with slippers on. <laughs> Not good. You cannot, you cannot breed from sheep like that. Now, soil will influence how much a sheep's feet will wear. If you have uh, deficiencies in zinc, you will have problems in feet, no matter what, whether you've got sheep or cattle or whatever. So nutrition can impact the growth of sheep's feet. Now, if you've got soft, wet conditions, it's not, you know, the abrasion isn't going to be there. And yes, they're going to get a little bit longer toes. But if your structure's correct, that long toe will eventually break off. So there won't be a problem. So then once you've seen that the, the, the structure is correct, you start to look at the breed characteristics and whatever breed it is, you need to make sure that they're right for that particular breed. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's a meat breed or wool breed or a dual purpose breed, and I believe all breeds are dual purpose to, to a degree. To extent, yeah. uh, a, a particular breed, breed description says it, it needs to have this, this and this. And you're looking at a breed that they say it's, it's a whatever and it doesn't have that, then just walk away. So there are ways and means of assessing all of those things. Mm. Now, what I like to do and, and, and no, not like I insist on doing is that you look at the animal first. And if you're buying a, a stud animal, you need to look at the pedigree. Then, and only then, will you look at performance data. Because I've seen some animals with some crazy numbers, mm -hmm. phone book numbers, <laughs> but you wouldn't entertain them. You wouldn't entertain them. So don't get drawn into looking at numbers and then picking the, the, the animal. You will finish up. Big, big problem. And when you say numbers, you're talking there about numbers like the muscle scanning and the, the, uh, the depth and the width of the, the eye muscle in particular? Perhaps not, much, not in actual numbers there. I'm, I'm referring to performance data. You know, okay. you might have a performance program where the index is X, Y, you know, 200 and whatever. It means nothing if the structure is not right. Okay. And if you focus on numbers, you finish up in trouble. You must focus first up on the structure, get that right, and then look at the, the data. And, and, and that should back up what you've already seen. Mm. But yes, I, I certainly encourage people to weigh and to scan as a guide, mm. uh, but get the structure right first. Mm. So obviously, with all this knowledge that you have, Gavin, and I know this, this we've identified quite probably quite a few other podcasts we can do together. So who do you think, who influenced you in your sheep journey? Who has been the, the major influencers for you that you can point to? As we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Dad, Dad wanted me to be a farmer. thing was, when I was at school, you worked before school, after school, weekends, holidays. You only went to school when you weren't working. So <laughs> Sounds like my childhood. <laughs> And so be it, you know, I went, to, I went to school in a horse and cart all my primary school years, believe it or not. The students laugh at me, but that's a fact. Dad used to breed uh, Clydesdale, Clydesdale horses and work Clydesdale horses. So my early farming uh, memories are Dad, you know, working team of horses. So 
I, I guess the people that influenced me was my dad because he gave me a start, my grandfather who helped my brother and I uh, get a start. But then once, once I, uh, I left school at 15 and brother and I started a seed cleaning business now, lumping 80 kilo bags of wheat in temperatures that are 50 degrees C plus isn't overly exciting. So I, <laughs> I look to go and learn something and that's why I went to the RMIT and learned about mm. sheep and wool passing. So when I'd done that, must have only then been 20 uh, when I started professional wool classing and our neighbour, Mr Jack Bradshaw, who uh, ran the uh, property called Rex Park, he enabled me to, or allowed me to uh, class his, his very good merino mm. clip. And uh, he, gave me, he gave me a start when I was only a beginner. Wow. So I, I couldn't have done that without the uh, instructors at the RMIT. Now, each of these gentlemen have since passed away. James Page Sharp, Tommy Harmsworth and Vinnie Tyquin. They were very uh, mm. influential and very helpful and... Uh, I think Vin was the last to pass away just a couple of years ago, and I did see him at the at the Berwick show and had a good chat, so that was good. Now, whilst I was doing wool classing and textile technology at night school, because I was trying to maximise my time there, we did what they call expert instructing. An, an expert, not a drip under pressure, but uh, is in a shearing shed, it's the person who looks after all the shearing gear and, uh, and uh, oh. grinds, sharpens the combs and cutters. And Jimmy gave me a start in his sheds. And, you know, I was, I thought, pretty good money those days. But uh, it was really interesting. Jimmy was, and I don't know that anyone listening to this will remember, Grasscost was a cooperative that uh, used to have a wool store, but also run the shearing industry was dominant in the shearing wow. industry, Queensland, New South, Victoria, South Australia and Tassie, particularly, and Jimmy run that during World War II and then he took me under his wing and we continued uh, into the, the late 1960s. So those people were some, I've, I've met some fantastic people and one of the things breeding sheep, you do meet some fantastic people and you form mm -hmm. life friendships with them. So that's my pick of people. Wow, that's amazing. That's great. It's, it is, it's always so good to identify who's helped you and, and, and acknowledge and recognise them because that's, that's what makes us who we are when, when we've had those influences in our lives, for sure. One of the questions I ask a lot of the people I interview on the Sheep Show podcast, because most of us, not all of us, but most of us are meat eaters. So what is your most favourite lamb cut or meat cut of, of lamb, Gavin? Ooh, uh, every one of them. Um, look, the the backstrap, uh, a lamb roast, you you, it is just wonderful. But one of the things that I've found of late in coals is that they have these sizzle steaks. I think they're leg steaks. They're quite thin. You get about. I think it's four or six in a pack for about seven or eight dollars. And you can throw that little steak in the pan and you can have, you know, uh, either a salad with it and yeah. you've got a meal within minutes. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah. The mm. thing is with lamb, it, it's a very, very good um, choice of meat. Mm. And 
if it's grass fed, you won't get better. That's exactly it. Yeah, for sure. Without a doubt. So thank you very much, Gavin. You've been such a, a wonderful resource to, to the listeners. And, uh, and yes, I think there's, this, we're just scratching the surface here. There's so much more we can talk about. But I'm sure listeners might want to, to connect with you after the, the podcast. So how could they connect with you if, if someone wanted you to come and perhaps, you know, class their wool sheep or, or mentor them or give them advice or help them with purchases? How could someone get in touch with you? Or even buy semen, perhaps, from, uh, from one of your amazing Romneys? Probably email at this stage is, is the better option, but uh, we might have to defer to you to find a, a better way. <laughs> what I'll do Something is I'll, that... uh, I'll, sorry, I'll add your email into the show notes so people can get your email there. And, and then if we have other, other ways of getting in touch with you, we can add them on. Very happy to, because I often get called in to help someone who's gone to the market or looked up an advertisement online for a particular breed of sheep and then I get called in when something goes wrong or any number of reasons. This is why I call you the Godfather. I don't know about the Godfather (laughs) but anyway. You call the Godfather when something goes wrong you see. (laughs) I I get quite um, upset when I see often young folk who have paid some pretty good pocket money towards these sheep and they are nothing but a mob of culls and to tell a a junior person that their sheep isn't up to standard is heart-wrenching and instead of the you know there's been jobs where I've gone out that should have only taken half an hour and I spend five hours there because I see it's important that the youngster has an understanding of what's wrong with their sheep, what they need to look for so that they don't make the same mistake again. So, you know, young folk, they're the future. We need to look after them. So what I encourage all stud breeders to do when their sheep are what we call culls, not up to scratch, not up to standard, Mm -hmm. don't board them on, don't sell them on to someone else for them to have a bad experience. If they're not good enough to remain in your flock, in your stud, don't sell them to someone else. The thing is that you might have some that are just sort of okay and you sell them a bit cheaper. The thing is that that buyer will forget the price long after they they have purchased those sheep. Mm -hmm. So um, sheep farming is like any other enterprise. Do the right thing and people will come back. But I'm, I'm really happy and at my age, you know, I want to help the young ones. I want to help people who I believe will make a difference in the industry. Mm. And the young folk, they're fantastic. They're the future. So it doesn't matter how old you are. I'm more than happy to help because I get a lot of pleasure out of helping. And that's the sort of things that that I like to do. Mm. And I'd like to pass on my knowledge and experience so that others don't have to spend as long as I have learning and and making mistakes. We all make mistakes. So, yeah, happy to happy to help anywhere, anytime. That's great. That's great, Gavin. And and, uh, it's it again, it's people like you who who do encourage and maintain new breeders and, and, and people in the industry, no matter what size your flock, no matter what breed you're, you're working with. So uh, it's, it's very generous of you to, to offer that. And, and I'm sure people will, will enjoy learning from you further to, to our conversation. 
So thank you very much for being on the podcast with me today, Gavin. You've been a, a, an amazing resource. And uh, I think we've highlighted a few other topics that we can explore in future podcasts. In particular, I want to want to have explored that line reading. So thank you very much. My absolute pleasure. And if anyone needs some assistance, yes, uh, initially send us an email and we'll see what we can do. But uh, the main thing is enjoy, be safe, make sure your sheep are safe, make sure that they have plenty of feed, clean water, shade and shelter. Really important. Look after them and they will look after you and you will enjoy everything thereafter. Good Thank advice. You. Thank you. You've been listening to the Sheep Show podcast with Jill Noble from Holston Valley Farm. Please take a moment to share this episode via your podcast app, email, or via social media channels. Each share helps us reach listeners just like you who can benefit from our content. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, sheep well.